Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbee, both New York City based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode is brought to you by the ABCs of Body Positive Parenting. Our signature virtual guides provide additional research and resources to help you put body positive parenting into action so that you and your care providers can help your children fully bloom. To claim your free guide, please visit our website at fullbloomproject.com. Today, we've got answers to the body positive parenting question, how can I prepare my home environment to support body positivity? That's the E in our ABC guide. With a little help from an amazing guest, Signa Darpinian, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist based in the Bay Area. She's also a body positive mama and a co-author of the must-have book, No Way, a teen's guide to positive body image, food, and emotional wisdom. I'd say this is one of our most practical episodes to date. Definitely. Signa walks us through some very tangible activities we can do with our kids, including one related to the hunger meter, which is available as a free download on our website, fullbloomproject.com. This is one of many practical tools she shares with us to help us prevent our kids' first diet which is so critical given how risky a risk factor dieting is to developing lifelong disordered eating and body image concerns. Signa, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. We love your book, which has such a fantastic title. Would you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I I don't know how this title sort of came to me, but the cool thing about the title is that I never really got any pushback from the publishing house or anybody else. So it, it sort of picked me. Um, it's called No Way. And way is, of course, being spelled W-E-I-G-H. So No Way, A Teen's Guide to Positive Body Image, Food, and Emotional Wisdom. So it's kind of a play on the word way, which we've been having a lot of fun with. <laughs> We're curious about why you decided to write a preventative book and also kind of what's driven your passion for preventing the first diet. Oh, that's a great question. So I was thinking about this in the field of eating disorders, as both of you know well, I'm assuming that we all have our sort of niche within a niche or our area of interest, sort of the the, the particular angle. There's so many great angles to go. And for me, I was always ignited and really lit up by even way back in the day, like I remember like 16 or 17 years ago when I was just entering into the field and um, learning about intuitive eating, uh, mindful eating, or Karen Koenig's definition, uh, the rules of normal eating. And I like the term connected eating or the idea of healing disconnected eating. And so it just really stood out to me as 
I was just always very interested. So I always sought it out at any of the eating disorder conferences, and it just kind of took off from there. And when I first started looking into it, I don't have a history of an eating disorder, but, you know, I had eating difficulties like most of us do. And I remembered back in the day, if you if you look at the, the, the hunger, there's a hunger meter that I use, and it's a scale of 1 to 10. So one being famished and really ravenous and a 10 being Thanksgiving stuffed, Thanksgiving dinner stuffed. So what I call, well, it it actually came from Janine Roth, but I was somebody who would usually start eating when I was pretty neutral. And she calls it eating for hunger to come. So I was somebody who uh, maybe on the hunger meter started eating at a four or a five when I wasn't full, but I definitely wasn't hungry. And so when I started learning about this idea of eating to appetite, uh, I was pretty fascinated by that. I'm like, huh, interesting. I don't think I really ever let myself get very hungry. So yeah, it's just something I was very interested in to to begin with. And um, it just always spoke to me. So what have you discovered in your practice is really the first step to preventing the first diet? Mm, that's a good question. So in my caseload, and I, I'm assuming it's similar in your caseload, we're, we are working more on the front lines of clinical eating disorders. And so when a case comes our way, we are dealing with people who, who first need to get recalibrated through mechanical eating or, or through a meal plan before we can um, start to do intuitive eating with them. But if we're talking about preventing the first diet, uh, I've actually been able to apply a lot of what I've been learning. I mean, I'm constantly learning. There's so much to know in this field, you know, so much to learn all the time. Um, but it's re- been really fun to apply what I know with my daughter, who's now eight and almost nine years old. It's just been interesting, you know, from the time that she was a toddler until now to really work on this language with her. So I think one of the first things is, I'm trying to remember back in the day, because I definitely started using this language, this embodied language with her from a very young age. And it seems like now at eight years old, almost nine, it's really becoming um, well integrated for her. So preventing the first diet, right? You want to kind of keep, you want to be modeling as well as speaking the language of that that attunement, And the language of eating in response to the body's wisdom and deciding, you know, deciding from the inside when you're going to eat, what you're going to eat, and when you're going to stop. And so uh, from early on, we've been using that language. So we'll we'll often talk in terms of the hunger meter, for example. So my my daughter, uh, she drew her own version of the hunger meter that, that you see online. And um, she put it, she put it over her little play kitchen and, and we'll use that language a lot. So if she's thinking about eating, if, if food is on her mind, at this point, she has a really great awareness. And so she knows, she'll say, oh, my stomach is so mad at me right now, you know, which might mean that she's more at a two or a one. So I, I define a three on the hunger meter as eating to appetite. Uh, what I also call, or we also call eating with manageable hunger. Where you're hungry, you're getting the first sign of hunger, however that looks for you, because it, it really, you know, shows up differently for everybody. And, and so the first, the first hit of appetite, uh, manageable hunger is, is when it's really quite easy, right? To kind of tune in and decide from the inside what it is that you want to eat, 
Whereas if we get to a two or a one on the hunger meter, it's a lot more ravenous and it's a little more panicky, or at least that's the way it shows up for most of us. And then one little kind of side note that I think is really fascinating is that when we get to a two or a one, our ghrelin, um, think gremlins, right? Our ghrelin increases. The hunger hormone becomes really intense. So food is on our mind. And then our, and our leptin, the satiety hormone, the hormone that lets us know when we're sated, when we've, ha- we've had enough, that gets weakened. So it makes sense that if you're starting to eat on that hunger meter at a two or a one, you're going to have some difficulty stopping at just enough. Mm-hmm. And so that's a great way just to kind of start using the language, you know. So she'll say like, oh, you know, you know, I'm at a two or a one on the hunger meter, but she, she may define it differently. So right now at eight, at close to nine, she'll say a two or a one on the hunger meter because that's, that's her stage of development. Whereas when she was younger, it was really fun to kind of hear the language, which would be like, my stomach is mad at me right now, <laughs> you know? And, and then she's also aware when, you know, when she is neutral and maybe she's at a four or a five on the hunger meter, but maybe it's beckoned by some food that's around that she doesn't normally have access to that's particularly special, maybe. Um, she's also aware of that. So she's come up with her own language, which I think, you know, parents and children can, can come up with their, their own language. It develops naturally. And so she calls it, she's like, oh, if she wants food, you know, I'll say, all right, yeah, you know, sure. She says, I think I'm, I don't know that I'm hungry. I think I'm just kind of foodie. I'm like, oh, all right. So just sort of presenting it in this way that's really neutral. Yeah. And just cultivating curiosity and just becoming awake and aware of what you're up to with your food. So we don't demonize if she's not hungry, just kind of being very casual about it, but really encouraging that awareness. So there's some distance between her and what she's up to with the food. So I'm just going to jump in with a question because I, I love the hunger meter and I, we have uploaded the, the image that you're referring to, but I love that you're saying you can get your kids engaged to create their own, like your daughter did in her play kitchen. But I know we're talking about it because it's your answer to the question, what is the first step to preventing the first diet? So we know that diets are a risk factor for developing eating disorders and that they're hazardous for young people and for all people, really. But why is this hunger meter? How is the hunger meter the first step to preventing the first diet? Like, how does it help prevent dieting? Mm, That's it. That's a great question. Okay. So I guess you could say, hopefully we're, we're dealing with prevention, but of course we're not always going to be, and we're going to prevent the first diet. Um, but of course, sometimes we're going to be getting somebody to go from a dieting mindset and replacing the dieting mindset with intuitive eating or with connected eating. And so it's preventative because um, if you can really strengthen that connection, that attunement with eating in response to the body's wisdom, I think people are going to be a lot less likely to disengage or disconnect from the body's wisdom and eat from the, you know, or make their food choices from what uh, I heard Deborah Burgard, Dr. Deborah Burgard say one time, um, prevent them from making food choices from the quote unquote chin up. Okay. So you want to preserve that embodiment and that connection and that attunement and start speaking the language and having that awareness of eating with hunger, eating without hunger, and all the different reasons why you might be eating, which is fine. You know, you could turn connected eating into a diet in a nanosecond if, if you, if you let it go that route. And so, 
you want to make sure to really just keep that curiosity with the food and that awareness so that it gives your child or, or it gives you a choice. Mm-hmm. So the goal, the goal is definitely not to encourage your child to not eat in a non-hunger way that because eating non-hunger eating is, is normal. You know, it would be odd to only eat with hunger. We're always going to have different things going on. You know, there's, uh, the season that we're in, or maybe we have some kind of, you know, for, for adults, like hormonal fluctuation or something situational. So there's just going to be all kinds of different things going on for us externally and internally on a regular basis. And food is, is food is going to get hit a little bit, you know? And so we don't want to demonize non-hunger eating. We just want to really make sure that that awareness and that connection to the body's wisdom is preserved and is strengthened, I guess you could say. And I think that will reduce the risk factor of eating in a way that is from the chin up or eating based on nutrients only, for example. Mm-hmm. You know? So today we're talking about preventing the first diet, but to your point, it's such a good one that this is actually something that could be utilized to help someone heal from a diet mentality, let's say. But in this case, the idea being if you give your child the opportunity to get to know their insides in terms of where they are on a hunger meter, giving them a chance to connect first and foremost with their own cues, that they'll be so embodied and connected to their internal experience that they're less susceptible to, let's say, rhetoric telling them, actually, you should be thinking about what you should eat, this chin-up idea, because they'll be so attuned to themselves. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. We don't want them to lose that attunement. Mm-hmm. And and then when the workbook, it was, it was meant, I, I remember attending a workshop one time. Well, I've attended many of their workshops, but um, in the Bay Area, we have the Body Positive and I was at one of their workshops, and they mentioned this concept that just seemed so novel to me at the time. Um, they they talked about this idea that with uh, good, good prevention is 90% solution and 10% mm. about the problem. And that really spoke to me because I remembered, you know, recruiting clients to go see, you know, certain documentaries that were sort of maybe coming from, they seemed like they were documentaries that would be helpful in prevention, but they were maybe the flip, the flip of that, that, that ratio. So maybe 90% the problem, 10% the solution. So the workbook is designed with about nine, we hope about 90% solution. And then of course you, you have to talk about the problem before you can fix it. So in our caseload, so yes, ideally it's preventative and you just strengthen this attunement, but in, in our caseload, sometimes, you know, once the, the individual is recalibrated with their body's signals, you know, their, their, their hunger and their satiety, um, and of course, that work is usually done with a registered dietitian and sometimes without, but once they have that recalibration from the mechanical eating, and I know in my caseload, I, I kind of wait, you know, to get the green light from the dietitian to move into more intuitive eating I see it as something that, yeah, that, that would be more healing, disconnected eating. And the disconnected eating could be not feeding. So, so really preoccupation occurs, right, when we are not feeding a body that is asking to be fed or, conversely, feeding a body that's not asking to be fed. 
right? So if I'm on a regular basis eating, I'm feeling pulls toward food without hunger at all, and I'm eating at a six, which would be kind of an ideal stopping place. So I define a six as room for more, but a comfortable stopping place, satiety, which is, you know, fine, but I also, it's, it's also fine to eat beyond that. So if I'm on a regular basis feeding a body that's not asking to be fed, so I, hunger is not part of the equation, I'm going to have some preoccupation because it's not hunger. So it, it's like Karen Koenig's quote is, is my favorite. Karen Koenig is the author of many books, but one of my favorites is The Rules of Normal Eating. And she says that when, when we have a craving of any kind, right, a craving, what you pull toward or pull in for your craving, it should reduce your original desire. So if I remember in the early days uh, when my daughter was a baby, and I remember specifically where this quote really came together for me because I, I was out late for the first time um, since I had had her. And babies don't really, you know, care what time you get in. They're going to wake up when they're ready to wake up. And so I remembered uh, throughout that next day, it was over the holidays. So there was lots of like really good, like seized candy around, which I love. And I remembered the next day just being so tired because I think I had less than five hours of sleep and I was so tired the whole day. And so every time I felt tired, I would feel a little pool toward food or I was starting to kind of make a connection with a pool toward food. So I'd eat the C's candy, which is lovely, nothing wrong with the candy, but I'd eat the C's candy and um, it worked in the short term, but again, like the, it was a shortened state of well-being because the minute that I was done with the candy, that tired came right back up. It's like playing the game whack-a-mole at the fair, you know? Mm-hmm. So it didn't create a reduction in my original desire because what I really needed was a nap. So that's the only thing really that would have created a reduction in that original desire mm-hmm. is sleep. You know, what? just Signa, because you brought up candy, it made me think a little bit about something that we talked to you about previously in terms of equal food availability and food morality. I'm eager for our listeners to hear a little bit more about what you have to say about candy since you brought up the oh, yeah. candy. So if it's okay, could you share a little bit about, you know, like the upside to candy and how candy actually could be part of this first step to preventing the first diet? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Okay. So, and you know, in all households will be in a different spot. I mean, I had the advantage of really studying this work for a long time before even having my daughter. So the way that we did it was I always made sure to have candy available all the time. So it's in the part two of the workbook. The very first chapter is about making foods not only equal in morality, which would be, you know, the highest goal being that ice cream equals broccoli. You want to take the morality out of it. Okay. It's getting back to this idea that um, robbing a bank is bad, not eating a hamburger. So taking the morality out of it. So you want to make foods not only equal in morality, but equal in availability. And so the way that this really stood out to me was I specifically remember it was a, it was quite a few years ago around Halloween and around Halloween time, or it was a little bit after Halloween. And, um, I brought the Halloween candy that I had one of the bags I brought with a really good Halloween candy, you know, like the Twix and the Reese's peanut butter cups, like the not joking around one. Right. So I brought it to the office and I had it in the refrigerator. We have a kitchen um, at my office 
And I would bring things like the makings for a sandwich. Okay. So, you know, the lunch meat would be separate from the bread. It's not all put together. So everything is there to, to make the sandwich, but it's not, it's not already made. And so what I would find is if I had a pretty jam packed day without much of a break, I would go into the fridge and, and I was probably, you know, thinking back more like at a two or a one. And one little interesting kind of side note about feeling pulls toward sugar is that it is actually quite intuitive, which is interesting because sugar is the, the, the quickest energy source. Mm, yeah. You know? So anyway, yeah, right? So it kind of makes sense. That's, that's such an adaptive thing for the body to do is to crave sugar when you're so hungry. But anyway, I would go to the fridge, say on the hunger meter, I'm, I'm pretty ravenous, and I would open it up and I would grab, I would end up eat, grabbing what was easiest, which is the, you know, fun size candy versus what my body was actually calling for, which would be more dense, you know, maybe protein and some fat and carbohydrate, like a sandwich with some mayo. So that's what my body was actually calling for. But because it wasn't equal in availability, I would grab what was easiest. Mm-hmm. So at that time, it really stood out to me that, gosh, if, you know, one of the foundational pieces, sort of the domino that hits everything else is to have the food readily available, equal in availability, not only morality, so that ultimately the fridge, a connected eating refrigerator, uh, which this is not an easy task because this, this requires a lot of preliminary work that we don't all have time to do, but it would be a refrigerator that has the sandwich halves cut up, um, maybe cubed up fruit and cheese sticks, and I'm trying to think of things that would be in the fridge, and the Halloween candy would be there too. So then you open it, and you're going to end up grabbing what your body is calling for versus what's easiest. And I like the idea, and this is a fun one to use with kids, but when you do have appetite, I like the idea of speaking to them about tuning in and deciding from the inside what your what your three T's are. So the three T's stand for what texture, temperature, and taste it is that you're interested in. And, and that's going to vary with seasons. So right now, you know, it's really hot. And so the texture, temperature, taste that we might be craving might be like, you know, watermelon or um, like hearty salads. Does that make sense? And so, so yeah. really teaching kids to tune in and decide from the inside and, and as well as using their three T's. That's a really fun one. And, and and it's fun for to use ourselves as well. I really love this, and I think the idea of equal food availability and equal food morality. I feel like we could talk, we could have a whole other podcast about that, and maybe we will if our listeners want it. Um, because I certainly feel that that's just got to be so helpful for kids and people in general to really take it out and I know with my clients this idea of morality and food it's really hot right now in you know, right in the world this social kind of being the wellness diet and 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 they just get so pulled in to it and how do we as parents from the beginning really flatten the playing field um right well so said kids can choose you know can really intuitively choose Right. And take the air out of some of this sugar piece. You know, I I just I was I was, of course, thinking about our podcast today and um, just this morning. And this happens very often. And I'm sure it does for the two of you as well. But I got a call like I do pretty often. Young woman, maybe preteen, teenager 
has watched yet another fear-based maybe show or documentary about food and, and just kind of like, you know, encouraging that cross wiring with morality and food. And, um, it's really dangerous. Um, and it's an interesting too. So backing up, cause I did forget to say that one of the things that we obviously do is try to keep sugar around and we, we go to a place called it's sugar. So I don't know if they have one in New York, but we, yes. know, we frequent it's sugar pretty often and we've got it, we've got it around the house and it just takes the air out of it. You know, my daughter at Halloween, like I, I had to remind her, I'm like, Hey, your bag of candy, were you going to eat it? You know, because she's more interested in her costume and going trick-or-treating with her friends and going door-to-door. Um, and the candy, she'll kind of pick out the ones that she really loves. And the rest, it just, it's, it's no big deal to her. She can have it anytime she wants it. That message and that example with your daughter really getting into this, literally the spirit of Halloween and the experience. And the candy is part of it, but it's not all of it. I think it's so important for us all to hear because a lot of very well-meaning parents think they're doing right by their children keeping sugar out and sort of adhering to some of these more wellness, as Leslie called it, wellness diet, even though people are kind of mm-hmm. looking at it more as a lifestyle or just a healthy way. And But there's there's something, right, this may be counterintuitive, if that's how you're thinking, to making regular trips to its sugar. I'm hearing you say that that's like a regular thing. It's but regular, it's, at least it's, once a month. Yeah, and it's not leading your daughter to eat, eat a lot of sugar. It's sort of having it's the not. opposite effect. And I, I, I really want our listeners, partic- you know, like here in New York City, I think in, in particular, we have candy stores, but the, there's probably more juice presses on the corners than, than it's sugar stores. And, and it's just, it's a helpful, it's a helpful reminder that actually in uh, taking the air out of it, I like that expression, we can actually, from a very early age, encourage our kids to have really balanced relationships, not just with sweets, but with themselves. And that's just so critical. That's what we're talking about. That is such a good point. Cause I remember in one of Jennifer Rowland's articles on sugar, um, I loved her quote. It was something along the lines of, we're not, we're not looking to get rid of sugar. We're, we're looking more to maybe repair your relationship to sugar. So there's no need to get rid of it, but more maybe repair the relationship to sugar. So, which is a whole topic in and of itself. And it's such an interesting one, but, but I also want to say we're not going, we're not going to eat sugar once a month because we need to stock up every month. Although we do a lot of times the stuff that we get there, it just kind of goes bad and every parent can make their own rules. They, you know, they have the attunement to their child that no one else could have. And so some parents, you know, have it out in glass jars, um, in full view on the counter in the kitchen. Other people put it in the pantry and it's like available, but it's not as beckoning. And so it really just depends, you know, on what you think works best. But yeah, if you have it around enough, it, it's not that special. Um, yeah. We talk about it's... how sugar has its own like superhero powers and it has its fun, you know, it's like a party in your mouth, right. uh, just like all other foods do. But it's not that big of a deal. She can right. have it anytime she wants it. And mm-hmm. as a result, doesn't end up craving it so often, you know. So you talked about a lot of things that I, I hope that our listeners feel that from this, that from this episode, they, they have a lot of ideas to put into practice. But we like to ask at this podcast, on this podcast, what we call the million-dollar question um, so that our parents don't get overwhelmed um, at each podcast um, because we're parents and we know 
how overwhelming it can be to be a parent. So we want to ask you, you know, if each parent listening to this episode took away and did one thing from your just knowledge and advice and experience, what's the one thing you would recommend they do? Hmm, that's a great question. It is the million dollar question. Well, um, I do think that this message can be overwhelming because we, we're in a different position because we're on the front lines of eating disorders. And so we're aware of how important this preventative work is. I think, but it still sounds counterculture, you know, even though it's becoming more mainstream. I like this idea um, it might be overwhelming to think of like, oh my gosh, I have to go like load up on a bunch of sugar. And, and a lot of times parents have, you know, their own distrust with, with their own body. And so that's really triggering to bring something in the house that you may not be in a good spot with yourself. And so I like the idea of parents maybe thinking about building their own self-trust in slow ways. It's like with eating disorder providers, same thing with parents, like we, we are all swimming in this culture, all of us, whether we're providers or we're parents, we're all in the same culture. And this is hard work because we're bombarded with a lot of messages that tell us to do the opposite of trust our body. And so we have to clean up our own body image and food issues. But that being said, it's a process, not a finished product. So we don't have to be perfect with this. We don't have to be all the way there to get started. So maybe it looks like, you know, with clients that have distrust, I'm, I'm thinking of adult clients, so there's probably a better analogy, but maybe if somebody has been kind of foodie or, or bingy on something like pie, um, well, you know, I'm not going to say when there isn't any self-trust there, I'm not going to encourage that client to bring a pie into their house before we have that self-trust, but I may tell them to go out and have their favorite piece of pie. And maybe have it for lunch, you know, have it with appetite, figure out exactly what pie it is that you want to have, eat it with pleasure, stop it just enough. So I think that if parents could be working toward and returning back to their own self-trust and embodying what it is that they're speaking, I think that would be key. It's such wonderful advice. And I'm my uh, shorthand interpretation is if you feel able Go to its sugar, buy candy, <laughs> keep it in glass jars or in your pantry. That would be like a great thing to do. But if that recommendation feels too overwhelming because you may have your own feelings and issues with candy, then go eat a piece of pie <laughs> like yourself. Right. Or, or your version of a piece of pie. Go right, out right. and have a serving. Go to its sugar and maybe, you know... Get right. some sugar with your child to eat that day versus bringing right. it into the home before you're ready and that self-trust piece is yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, but the, the highest goal uh, for everybody, right? I mean, we want to be walking our talk. So like with our caseloads, we're, we're, we can't expect our clients to get a lot further than where we are. So the, the, the more we embody what it is that we're teaching, the, more, the better it's going to be on the other end. And so the highest goal is to swap this strategy of what I call an external locus of control. Okay, so the external locus of control is kind of like, well, if they would just quit bringing those cupcakes or those donuts to the break room, you know, in whatever office it is, then I'd be fine. So external locus of control, meaning I'm okay if the cupcakes aren't there, but if they're there, I'm going to eat them, whether I want them or not. We want to swap it <laughs> to an internal locus of control 
where the cupcakes are there, maybe I have one with or without hunger because they're my favorite kind. Um, but maybe I don't because I can also get a cupcake anytime I want a cupcake. Mm-hmm. So we want to do whatever we can to strengthen that self-trust. What I'm hearing is the first step for, for children really is to start their relationship with food with the idea of the hunger meter, meter and those principles, right? To really teach them that attunement. Right. As a parent, trying to parent that, that attunement really is, is imperative to be there within themselves as well or to be working on it together even to really right. pull out um, that attunement so that with availability, with the going to its sugar, they, they're connected so they can, they can experience the pleasure of, of having sugar in the house. You know, or, So it's kind of like your answer kind of encompasses everything that you said. <laughs> right. I guess you're modeling food freedom, hopefully, right? So the foundational piece is, is equal in availability, not only equal in a morality, okay? So equal in availability, all foods are there in the fridge, ready to go, equally easy to grab. So the body can pull what it's actually calling for from the inside out, not the chin up, um, versus what's easiest to grab. So equal and availability is the preliminary work, the foundational piece. And then you're getting them thinking about the hunger meter, you know. So, so with that pull toward food, are you at a three, the first sign of appetite? Are you at a two or a one where you're ravenous? Um, or are you just feeling like you want something, you know, sweet or, or not, and you're just kind of neutral, eating for hunger to come? It's, it's fine. You just want to increase that awareness of what they're up to with food and why, so that they can then, whether it's the child or the parent, have a choice. That awareness gives them a choice about what it is that they're up to. But we're definitely, our goal is not to always start at a three and stop at a six. Um, it's cool when we can do that, and it's also just fine when we don't. So you want to just sort of get curious, like, oh, interesting. I had a really hard day at work, and I'm feeling a pull toward milk, chocolate, caramels without hunger. Um, and then if you kind of decode, you know, what's the feeling I'm trying not to feel right now? Ah, I, I, had, I had a hard time, and I want to reward myself with, with food. Fine. So you just kind of acknowledge it, cultivate a little curiosity, then put it in the rearview mirror and move on. So we want to just develop this just really um, peaceful relationship to food and body, not one that has preoccupation, that, again, comes with chronically feeding a body that's not asking to be fed or chronically not feeding a body that's asking to be fed. More mindful eating can be a little more limiting than eating all the time, right? But it definitely has a more peaceful quality to it. Thank you so much for that summary. So well said. And I'm definitely making sure that all of my clients have copies of No Way, A Teen's Guide to Positive Body Image, Food and Emotional Wisdom. I want to plug your book because we're big fans of it. And we hope that you know people listening will also grab it to get more insights from you and the awesome people that you wrote the book with and just thank you so much we will oh, we will definitely you. have you back if you'll if you'll if you'll be willing to come uh, they're such fun topics leslie and zoe thank you so much and thank you for the work that the two of you do as well so that's our show and now i'm in the mood for pie <laughs> me too You know, I've been playing around a lot with the three T's 
I love that so much. It's really interesting what the boys come up with when I ask. We had that random warm day last week and my little guy asked for a popsicle for a snack. And at first I was a little reluctant because we were heading to a birthday party later that day, but it occurred to me that it was warm and he wanted something cold. It was cool to see him make an embodied choice like that from the neck down. So we had popsicles. <laughs> and I've been using the hunger meter with my girls recently and it's been really rewarding to watch them learn what feels to me like a, a new language for them. I see that without realizing it, I actually had a language around the food environment that wasn't so helpful really in encouraging them to have a relationship with their own body and its signals. And it really feels like a marriage between episode eight, Evelyn Triboli's eye for intuitive eating. Yes, and episode number nine with her about play food. Oh, right, yeah, and this episode. So I just, I really encourage everyone to play around with the visual representation of the hunger meter. For me, with young girls, it was really a fun art project, but it's also just a great visual way to learn this new language for really the whole family. Yes, and as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would greatly appreciate your leaving us a review or rating on iTunes or Stitcher so others can find us. Follow us on Instagram at Full Bloom Project and tune back in next time for more body-positive parenting wisdom.